Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And yes, I really did think that I'd get this podcast out a couple of days sooner, but to tell the truth, I just didn't feel like spending so much time at the computer this past couple of days. So I did something that I haven't done in a while, and simply read. (laughs) But some of our fellow saloners didn't take the week off, and so my first report about our annual fund drive is a good one. In the first seven days of our drive, 42 people have made contributions, and they add up to enough to take us to this coming June 10th, which will be the 10th anniversary of podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. So I can now rest easy knowing that for sure I'll be able to complete 10 years of podcasting in just a couple of months. Now it's up to uh, our fellow saloners to determine how many months beyond June we'll keep going. And I'm hopeful that the next three weeks of the fun drive will be successful enough to keep us going until next March, when we'll have to go through this exercise once again. Also, I'd like to thank Kevin J. and Raymond R., both of whom wrote a recent review for the revised paperback edition of my novel, The Genesis Generation. And I want to thank the four people who purchased a copy of it on Amazon. They don't send me any information about who purchased a copy, but whomever bought the copy on March 3rd is the owner of copy number 1, and the purchase on March 4th was copy number 2. Now, if you want to know more about this year's fun drive and the gift that comes with every donation, then you can listen to podcast 438, which is uh, very short and gives all the details. Now let's uh, get on with the show. If you recall, in the podcast just before this one, we left Terence just as he had put forth the conventional view about how we humans wound up with such big brains. And so this session picks up with Terence telling his ape and the mushroom story. And I have to admit, my first impulse was to cut that part out, as it's something that most of us have heard before. But I couldn't find a good place to pick up without his lead-in. So for the newcomers here in the salon, this will be a really good introduction to what Terence McKenna thought of as one of his two original ideas. Actually, it's one of his better tellings of this theory. And in truth, it's one that I still think of as having a lot of merit. And my qualifications for saying that are completely non-existent, by the way. (laughs) It just seems to uh, have the ring of truth to me for some reason. And for you old-timers here, uh, see if you can figure out how much of the following I should have edited out in the beginning. So if you recall that when Terrence left off in my previous podcast, he had just stated the more or less then-mainstream proposition about human evolution that the rapid increase in brain size came about by the need to throw objects at large animals, well, we'll pick up right where he left off. Nobody knows what happened, and I, I think that our blind spot on this matter is a cultural one, and that the key to understanding the breakout of human consciousness is dietary and pharmacological. And that what happened to us is, like most animal species, we were very happy to achieve an ecological uh, climax to fill our niche 
in the canopied rainforests of Africa about five million years ago. That's where we were at. Fruit-eating, canopy-dwelling, so forth and so on, or earlier. And uh, that environment came under pressure from the evolution of the climate of the planet. It simply began to dry up. Africa is still drying up, and it's still creating political problems for human beings because of it. Uh, the collapse of the African tropical forests has, has been feeding into the human adventure since, it's, since it began. Well, uh, an animal under pressure, environmental pressure like that, has uh, uh, only two choices. It can go extinct. And if its genetic component is sufficiently rigid, like a lower animal, uh, a butterfly, a beetle or something, it will go extinct. If the food supply is threatened, it will go down with it. Higher animals are more adaptable, and they, uh, under nutritional pressure, will begin to experiment with, with other foods, unfamiliar foods. The reason animals don't normally experiment with foods is because uh, food specialization is a strategy for avoiding mutagens in the environment, things which cause, uh, interrupt uh, RNA transcription or cause birth defects or something like that because many, many plants sequester, meaning store in their tissues, toxic compounds. Uh, specifically uh, evolved to discourage uh, browsing and predation. So animals specialize. If an animal is forced out of its creode of food preference and begins experimenting with many different foods, the rate of mutation will rise. And natural selection, working on this higher incidence of sporting or mutation, will produce a jump in evolutionary activity. There will be a rise in lethal mutations, but consequently and coincident with this, there will be a small rise in successful mutations. And to give you an example of this that makes it not so abstract, um, birth control pills are made from the roots of Dioscorea vines and are grown on huge plantations in Mexico. Uh, it's cheaper to produce them biologically than in a vat. Uh, well, Dioscorea is the genus of sweet potatoes, and sweet potatoes in the tropics have always been a very important human food. So here you have in the tropics many uh, genetic and racial variants of these sweet potatoes. Now imagine a hungry troop of primates discovering a, a patch of sweet potatoes with a high incidence of these steroid compounds in them and chowing down. Mm -hmm. And so what you're going to get is interrupted lactation, miscarriage, screwed up child spacing. Uh, it's just a mess. It's just like stirring the genetic pot. Well, over and over, over a million and a half years, these scenarios were enacted many, many times. 
The sweet potato example is a fairly benign example. Usually these little experiments in gourmet dining ended tragically. But in this mix of many things on in, recall, what is a grassland environment, because by now the hominids are down in the grassland, they're rooting for corms, which are the roots of grasses, which are a source of protein, and baboons still prefer these, and this is why monkeys use digging sticks. It's corms thereafter. So we're foraging in a grassland environment in Africa in a situation where large ungulate animals are evolving at the same time. This is the perfect environment for psilocybin mushrooms to uh, flourish. And in all tropical environments where these elements are present, psilocybin mushrooms do flourish. Well, um, there's no question that our hungry, binocular, seeing, curious ancestors would have checked these mushrooms out. I've seen in Kenya baboons in grassland investigating cow pies because they know from long experience that if you flip over an old cow pie, you'll probably find beetle grubs. And so it's a, a vector for protein. I mention the cow pies because, as you probably know, they are the preferred environment for the mushroom. Well, so here then is a mushroom sequestering psilocybin in its tissue. And what is psilocybin? Well, for the moment, let's just say it's an incredibly powerful neurocatalyst in, in primates. And so here come the primates. And they eat psilocybin. And the first effect that they experience at low dosages, so low that you can't feel them, you know, as a self-reflecting person, is visual acuity. Increase in visual acuity, especially, and this has all been secured by measurement in laboratories with grad students, especially edge detection, movement of edges, well, this is the skill, the ability that is the difference between life and death in an environment of tall grass, both for getting food and for spotting approaching predators who are creeping through the grass on their fuzzy tummies. So uh, immediately then, this chemical factor being unconsciously imbibed in the food chain has is begins to divide the hominids into two groups those that accept this item into the diet and those that for reasons of taste allergy or who knows what don't and they begin to be outbred why outbred because visual acuity means success in hunting Success in hunting means a more dependable food supply for yourself and your offspring, and that's the key to evolutionary advance. To bring your own children to reproductive age is the name of the game. I mean, nature is pretty relentless about this. Okay, so that's the, the tiny, tiny crack in the door which allows psilocybin 
in concert with the hominid brain to begin to work toward higher levels of self-reflection. Now, the next level in this argument, and these levels of psilocybin use were obviously going on simultaneously. I'm just presenting them incrementally. Some animals would not be content with simply browsing psilocybin mushrooms as part of their hunting and gathering regimen. Some would take more. Some would take more. And a middle-range dose of psilocybin, which can be obtained from just two or three specimens, I mean, it would quickly be attainable, is uh, CN, involves uh, CNS arousal, central nervous system arousal, which is the feeling you have after a double cappuccino. You know, you can't sit down, you're restless, you're maybe dancing is a possibility, and you're just agitated. And in highly sexed animals like primates, this CNS arousal means erection in the male. And, you know, without the advent of Christian and Calvinistic rectitude, our primate ancestors uh, probably fell to humping at every opportunity. We certainly see this in the bonubo, the pygmy chimpanzee, which is our genetically nearest relative. Well, from an anthropologist's point of view, more sex activity means more of what they call successful copulation. It means a second factor is acting in this population to outbreed the non-psilocybin-using members of the group. The better-fed, more successful hunters feeling more frisky are having more sex and more children are being born into the, the um, psilocybin-using members of the tribal set than the non-psilocybin-using. And then, and simultaneous in time, yet higher doses would be taken. I mean, three mushrooms puts you in the mood for hanky-panky. Six to eight mushrooms nails you to the ground by the campfire and there is no thought of hunting or sex or even movement because your boundaries are dissolved, you have, you have fallen into trance. And we, you know, with all our intellectual sophistication, moonflight, Heidegger, advanced mathematics, we still can't get a handle on what this stuff does to us. We still come down quaking with awe. And so you can imagine its impact on a hominid of, uh, of the high Paleolithic. I mean, it was literally, uh, you know, if, if people were naive enough to think that thunder and lightning could have inspired religion, they should take five grams of psilocybin on a dark, stormy night in a desert grassland and see if that doesn't uh, carry you over the brink. Uh, so an extraordinary thing is happening here. Uh, what's being proposed is a kind of, er- of um, uh, symbiosis that this hominid is, has discovered by accident, I'm sure, uh, a factor in the environment, a chemical factor, which is just beginning to open a doorway 
onto successful food, which means happiness, uh, a different sexual style. And this is something I want to talk about that's very important because you might say, well, that's all very well, and maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but so what? It's a long time ago. But I draw a political implication from all of this because... um, we have a lot of behaviorally we're messed up and how could we have gotten so far and yet be so messed up or what's the deal and i think it all goes back to this same set of factors when you look at at the at the primates even the pre-hominids i mean back into the squirrel monkeys and the lemurs even the old world primates they all have what are called dominance hierarchies and that means uh, that the hard-bodied, long-fanged young males control everybody. They control women, of course, children certainly, the elderly, the homosexual, and the ill. Everybody's taking orders from uh, the tough guys in the hood. This is a this is how primates do it, and it's how we do it today sitting here and of course we're self-reflecting beings we build spaceships we etch circuits on pinheads and so forth but male dominance hierarchies are how our society is run there may be some whining and, and criticism at the edges but the fact of the matter is that's how it is and it's not a happy situation it's not making things better uh, so the psilocybin I think acted because of this eroticizing factor, psychedelic slash erotic factor. I think that it overwhelmed that uh, tendency toward male dominance. That it was like a, a, a pharmacological intervention on a maladaptive social habit. And that uh, this group sexuality this orgiastic sexuality that established itself in the high Paleolithic and only faded out seven or eight to 10,000 years ago was artificial in the sense that primate uh, genetics and behavioral programming would not maintain it except in the presence of psilocybin. And so uh, the... The tendency to form monogamous pairs, which is strong in the primates and strong in us, was interrupted for a long, long period of time, the very period of time when consciousness was emerging. And it was interrupted because of this um, eroticization factor, which is very strong in us. It's strong in all the primates, but more in us than any other. You know, other primates have uh, have estrus cycles. They have heats where the females go into fertility and the, the sexual stuff is confined to one or two parts of the year. We are the only uh, up-and-ready species. Uh, and, uh, and all of these changes had to do with creating a very strong social glue among these tribal groups because you see the social consequence of orgy 
is that men cannot trace lines of male paternity. That's really what it's about. The women know whose children there are, they have, in terms of that it's they are the mother because they birth the children. But men's loyalty then goes to the group and it creates an incredibly strong social glue. During the same period where psilocybin was suppressing uh, monogamous pair bonding and establishing instead this orgiastic sexual style, it was uh, responsible for glossolalia. It triggers glossolalia, even in modern human beings. Do you all know what glossolalia is? It's speaking in tongues. It's linguistic activity, meaning grammatically structured audio output without meaning. Meaning seems to come very late. And in trying to imagine how language could possibly have evolved, the only way that makes sense to me is to suppose that it preceded meaning, that it's a kind of entertainment where you chop up time with sound, you know? I mean, children do this. They go, e a u n i no 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 This is chopping up time with sound, and it's amusing. And if you're good at it, you know, as you've all heard Aboriginal people do very interesting things with their voices, then it becomes a kind of entertainment. It was only some late-arising positivist nerd who had the idea, aha, you know, we can decide that nertna means water. And then somehow we can play this game where when I say that, you know... And, and then the game, we were off and running. But I think language could have been 100,000 years old at that point, or m- maybe not that old. But, but that the, the, gra- the grammar, which through Chomsky's work and others has been established to be innate in the organism, uh, was established before the convention of meaning. That's why the rules of transformational grammar work for all languages because they are deeper, they are the hardware, local languages are the software. Well, so during this period, when human beings and mushrooms and cattle were evolving a tighter and tighter relationship on the Saharan grasslands, uh, uh, this is the period when Everything about us that we think of as human came into existence. Theater, poetry, ethics, religion, uh, symbolic representation, language, the whole toolkit was evolved under conditions of dissolved male dominance maintained by a relationship to an indole-containing plant. And you can see in the last dim echoes of this era that have gotten into the archaeological strata that what was present was a religion of a goddess. Nature was imaged as feminine. And this goddess was always horned. That means she is a cattle goddess. Cattle are right in there at the beginning. And... uh, 
and it's uh, an image of uh, boundary dissolution and orgy. There are no um, established edges, no cities, no territories. There is simply, you know, this vast grassland cut by rivers and, you know, islanded with rocky upland. And in this, people existed in two phases, I think. An early phase, 30 to, well, let's say 30 to 45,000 years ago, when the cattle and the human beings and the mushrooms were all together, but there was no institution of, of husbandry as such. And then a later phase that comes at the end of the Magdalenian, about 18 to 20,000 years ago, that only disappeared about 10,000 years ago. And at that point, uh, it, was a, it was like what we're experiencing. It was like the end of the world. Because as the mushrooms died away, and they, they faded for climatological reasons, first they retreated into seasonality, then into the rain shadows of mountains, and then finally they were a rare trade item. The scarcity of mushrooms forced the evolution of a special class of people to take them, shamanism, priesthood, all of these things. And finally, when there were no more mushrooms, the primate programming that had been held in abeyance for perhaps 300,000 years to some degree returned with a vengeance. And the orgiastic sexuality was suppressed. Uh, nomadism ended. Agriculture was invented. City-states slavery, class hierarchy, standing armies, um, the whole toolkit of male dominance, Western civilization, alphabetic existence, so forth and so on. It came into existence slowly, and we may talk about this if it's interesting in more detail. But this is our story, I think that we were created by an unlikely confluence of a neurological catalyst and a foraging omnivorous monkey, that that catalysis created a kind of paradise in the mind and in the body of the first intelligent beings on the planet, and that when, for reasons that we couldn't understand at the time, the evolution of the climate of the planet, the, the connection was broken, we fell into history. We lost our compass because this psychedelic experience is the bridge between a, a, our species and the Gaian intent the larger overstructure of, of planetary unfolding. And without this pipeline into the Gaian intent, history becomes, we try to make it up ourselves. We try to make up the agenda. And the only agenda we've been able to dream up is to dominate each other, to conquer territory, to 
deal stuff to each other uh, and and so forth and so on. I mean, it, it's the forward march toward the transcendental object that was well underway 10,000 years ago turned into a kind of bargain basement flea market with no direction at all. And that's what we've been doing for several thousand years. Well, is there any question at this point? I mean, that's part of the story. But this is in answer to your question, believe it or not. I don't want to interrupt his question with so much more profound. But this morning at breakfast, I asked this question last night, and we were discussing it, and we still don't have, I think, a handle on what you meant when you were saying the end of history. Oh. What history? And were you talking, because every day is a history. So well, trying... we can go back to that. We're close enough. I can see it from here. <laughs> uh, there are two ways of being in the world if you're an intelligent creature. Uh, one is where the present is uh, this hairline division between the past and the future. And the past exists in memory largely for the coordination of some agenda in the future. And that's history. That's the, how the historical mind works. It coordinates the past toward the future. It's the idea of progress. It's the idea that we are on our way somewhere and each generation should take a step down the road. You know, these kinds of metaphors of movement. And then, uh, Mersiliad talked about, and we could adopt his terminology, he talked about profane and sacral time. And he said, history is profane. Every moment is unique, and every moment uh, anticipates the future. And, he, and then he talked about the other kind of time, sacral time, where every action is what he called paradigmatic. That means every act is a repetition of a ritual act that occurred at the beginning. And so every father is somehow the first father. Every mother is the first mother. And people are conscious in the living of their lives of reenacting the paradigmatic activities. This is what we mean by the wisdom of the ancestors. You know, the wisdom of the ancestors is the paradigmatic activity. And there is a Tao. I mean, it's real. For instance, there is a way, I'm not sure I know it, but there is a way that McKenna's have picked up small objects for thousands of years, presumably. McKenna's, my people. And if I pick up an object that way, that's the easy way for me to do it. Because the Tao of the ancestors is blowing through the action. If I leave the Tao of the ancestors and do it some other way, it it drains energy. And and so uh, the 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 and historical people are always attempting to recreate an original perfection. And the historical people 
are in the an historical people are trying to create an original perfection in the moment through their existential validity, through their being, through their soul, we say. That's what we mean when we say they have soul. The historical psychology is all about uh, this stretched dimension of obligation, that there was a fall, that something must be fixed, that when it is fixed, then there will be this sense of satisfaction. But until then, somehow, you know, we are flawed. St. Augustine said, O Felix culpa, O happy flaw, because he saw that flaw as permitting the drama of redemption. Uh, you know, I would offer a big no thank you to the drama of redemption. I would just like to go get loaded in the woods myself. <laughs> but... Uh, so, and, and here, let me see if I can now connect this to what I wanted to say this morning, which is pretty close and maybe brings this all together. Uh, history is not something that we do. This is part of what the problem has been. We have thought of history as something that we do. History is something that is done to us. And therefore, we are not responsible. This is the first thing to understand. History is a process. It's like waves in the ocean, and you are a cork. And for the cork to struggle with its moral responsibility for the waves in the ocean is for it to woefully misperceive where in the cosmos it's actually located. Um, See, what happened to... There, there are two ways of seeing in the world. There's the world of, of, of space. And this is the world that we have conquered. Literally, we, the phrase, the conquest of space, we know what that means. The world of space is coordinated through the eyes. And it is the place where history is enacted. But there is another way of seeing, and we pay lip service to it without really understanding what it means. Uh, the third eye, if you want to follow that metaphor, or let's just call it the inner eye, the inner eye does not see space. The inner eye sees time. And if you do not have an inner eye, you are blind as a bat when it comes to time. And this is what we did. I mean, we blinded ourselves at the beginning of history. We stabbed out the inner eye. And this is why history is a blind groping, Western history, because we can't see the landscape. We closed off the inner vision that shows you the unfolding topology of time. And the way we closed it off was by abandoning the psychedelic experience. That's what the psychedelic experience is. It opens the inner eye, and what the inner eye sees is time. 
it, you may not realize that's what you're seeing, but that is what you're seeing in the same way that a person who blind from birth suddenly given eyes might say, is that the world? You know, is this stuff that I'm suddenly aware of the world? And, and so what we have to do is open this inner sight to uh, time. Now, think about it for a minute. Plants exist in time. They don't need to know about space. It's a very, very tenuous concept for a plant because they don't have motility. They, it's a rumored dimension that some of their more advanced metaphysicians hypothesize. But they live in time. Now, an animal, an animal is a thing of space, of eyes, of legs, of coordination, of fang and claw. It's a thing in the environment. And as the higher animals as you advance up the animal phylogeny, you see a, a, a slight claiming of the dimension of time by these spatially uh, fulfilled creatures called animals. We are neither plant nor animal. We are something else. And we can exist in space and time if we will cultivate animal and plant connections. Now, how do we cultivate animal connections? By being physical, by exercising ourselves, by honoring our bodies, by understanding our bodies, building them, putting them through various things. It's a tool. It's our tool dropped into the world of three-dimensional space. And how can we be like plants? How can we open the inner vision to the world of time? By flooding our uh, nervous system with the same alkaloids that they maintain in their living tissue for the purpose of stabilizing in that environment. A human being is a kind of plant-animal combination when they are at perfection. That's why shamanism is such a high ideal because what shamanism really is is a symbiosis with the plant world that opens you to the landscape of time. And to ordinary people, it's pure magic. They can't see it. And, and yet to you, you, the shaman, it's as obvious as, as the spatial world. So, uh, so this co-evolvement between human beings and plants is quite necessarily the concomitant to our intelligence. Our intelligence is simply a triangulation of higher dimensionality. That's what intelligence is. I mean, and, and this word dimension, I mean, don't be scared off by it. All, if somebody tells you that a system has 11 dimensions, all they mean is that there are 11 variables necessary to define it. 
there's no arm waving or you have to go to Harvard or something. It's just, you know, there are 11 variables necessary to define it. In 3D, 3. In 4, 4. Uh, the reason I think this is, is important is because we need to open our inner eyes to time because something is about to happen in the time world that we need to anticipate. Uh, this is what I call this transcendental object toward which we are being pulled, that the, the vision of time built by uh, people without inner eyes, i.e. science, is, is, a, is a woefully simplistic notion the way science views time is as a perfectly flat plane, utterly featureless at all levels of magnification. Now, the reasons for this, there are historical reasons for this, there are psychological reasons. The historical reasons are science began with the Greeks who were master geometers, and they... Uh, sought to model the, co the cosmos using the perfect objects of Greek mathematics, the perfect sphere, the perfect cube, the dodecahedron, so forth and so on. One by one, these perfect mathematical objects have been found inadequate to the description of nature. For example, the most spectacular and well-understood example uh, up until the time of, of uh, Copernicus, uh, the orbits of the planets were described using perfect circles because the planets were thought to be gods, and thus what else could they do but move in perfect circles? Uh, anything less would compromise their godliness. But it was found that when you used perfect circles to compute the orbits of the planet, you never got it right. What you had to do was drop in smaller perfect circles. And as observational accuracy increased, yet smaller circles. These are the famous Ptolemaic epicycles. And so finally, in order to compute the position of a planet, you had a perfect circle with perfect circles, with a perfect circle going around. The, do you get the idea? And by this tormented method, you could predict with reasonable accuracy the location of the planets. Well, it took, it took Copernicus, uh, with help from Kepler, to come along and say, this is all nonsense. Uh, ellipses describe the motion of the planets. And, uh, and when that adjustment was made, all that Ptolemaic nonsense uh, fell away. Uh, so one by one, the perfect mathematical objects of the Greeks have been put aside as inadequate in and of themselves to describe nature. In what, but there's one glaring exception to this. The original assumption that time is invariant was retained. The idea that time is a perfectly smooth surface. And what I mean by that to give you an idea of what a perfectly smooth temporal surface, how it, what its consequences are, 
if you study statistics for 10 minutes, the first thing they tell you is chance has no memory. The second thing they tell you is that if you flip a coin, uh, it, its odds of coming up heads or tails are 50-50. Well, but now notice that if the odds were really 50-50, the coin would land on its edge every single time. And this is the rarest of all consequences in coin tosses. I mean, you can live a life in low bars and never see a coin land on its edge. Of course, if the bar is sticky enough, you might. Uh, So some strange force, some magical force decides whether this coin will be heads or tails. The possibilities are that it will be heads or tails, but it can't be both. So out of the class of the possible, one outcome is selected for what Alfred North Whitehead calls the formality of actually occurring. The formality of actually occurring. Well, in a sense, science then is revealed as the the domain that tells us what is possible. If you want to know if something is possible, you ask a scientist. But no scientist can tell you out of the class of the possible why it is that certain possible things will actually occur and other possible things will not occur. In fact, they will tell you this is not a fair question. Uh, so in order to do science, there has to be this assumption of temporal invariance. This is because science is built on the concept of experiment. Without experiment, there is nothing that you can call modern science. And built into the concept of an, an experiment is a very untested and not deeply examined idea, which is that you can restore what scientists call initial conditions. In other words, the way experiment works is they say, set up the apparatus this way, do the procedure this way, and theory tells us that this will be the result. Now do it now get the result. Now And then they say, now do it again and get the same result. This do it again part of the thing contains within it the assumption that you can do it again, that you can restore initial conditions, when in fact this is not true. Suppose we want to do a very simple experiment. We want to measure how far a ball bearing will roll if we roll it down an inclined plane of 45 degrees that's 12 inches long. So we pick up our ball bearing, we carry it to the top of the plane, we release it, and the ball rolls down, and we measure how far it goes. Then we say, do it again. That means restore the initial conditions. So we pick up the ball bearing, we carry it to the top of the ramp, we let it go, and the thing happens again. 
in this simple example, initial conditions appear to have been restored because basically we are assuming so. Notice you never step in the same river twice. And it took my friend Ernie Wall five years ago to point out that if that's true, you never step in the same river once. Uh, but that's another story. So my point is that the people who created the idea of time as a perfect surface, their inner eyes were closed. They had been closed long ago by the rise of the phonetic alphabet, by the rise of monotheism, by the rise of, uh, of uh, certain kinds of cultural values, and by the absence of a psychedelic experience. Western civilization is the bundled group of civilizations that have been most distant from plant hallucinogens for the longest time. And all this shamanism that seems so mysterious to us is simply because we have lost touch with something that is as obvious to those who have not lost touch with it as the three-dimensional world we see around us is to ourselves. A part of what I'll talk about in the course of, uh, of these meetings is uh, a theory of time that is derived from the I Ching. The I Ching being a very old Chinese oracular system with its roots in Central Asian shamanism and so forth and so on. I don't want to talk about that this morning, but the reason I mention it is because there was a fellow here last week who was a, a scholar of the weird, W-Y-R-D, the, the weird being a, a Celtic theory of magical connection that basically sees all of reality as a kind of uh, wave mechanical jello through which resonance and influence is being conveyed. And uh, as he unfolded this for me, it was very clear to me that it was very much like what I had discerned in the worldview of the, of the people who created the I Ching, and it's very much what I discern on another level in the, in the world view, mathematics, mythology, and psychology of the, of the classic Maya. So what is becoming apparent more and more, and through the work of people like, on one level, Ralph Abraham's archaeo-mathematical archaeology, and Sheldrake's morphogenetic field is that there is a reality which we're not seeing, which is we can only make our way toward it by the most tortured of intellectual constructs, you know. I mean, we talk about quantum non-locality, we talk about synchronicity, but we don't see it. We, we construct, we're like blind people. You know, polishing a Cadillac in darkness or something, working from theory. Uh, we don't know what we have. Uh, 
But there is a way to actually see it, to have it snap into being for you in the same way that this world comes into focus and by opening your eyes. And, and experientially, the way to force it, as it were, is through the psychedelic experience. But then, in the face of that, the proper response is you have to assimilate the psychedelic experience, which means you have to be stoned without taking anything, not chemically stoned, but intellectually stoned. In other words, you have to use your time in those places to understand the rules of that game and then continue to play that game when you're out of it, when you're back here in the here and now. And, uh, uh, you know, cultivate these shamanic skills. And I don't think it can be done without an ideology. It's not a, it is a feeling-toned thing. It is a feeling-toned thing. But without a matrix of conceptual uh, overstructure to pour the feeling into, the feeling will fade the feeling will fade over time and then you'll have to renew it, which isn't such a terrible thing. But it is very nice to uh, to bring it out and to have it with you as something that you can call on. And what does it boil down to? Well, one definition of a shaman or of shamanism that I really like is a shaman is someone who understands how the world really works. That's all it's about. And not how people say it works or how it seems to work or how it sometimes works, but how it really works. I mean, And that's all science aspires to as well. A scientist wants to be somebody who understands how the world really works. The problem is the world they end up talking about is the black hole at the core of the Andromeda galaxy and the strange quark when what you want to know is why your girlfriend left you and uh, why you can't make money and so forth and so on. How does the world really work? And the way you measure progress on the shamanic path, I think, is by how smoothly the world is functioning for you. You know, even in, uh, even in the Bible it says uh, something about the mountains will become valleys and the way will be made straight. All it means is, it's that thing I was talking about a few minutes ago, the Tao of the ancestors. You know, uh, to my mind, in a perfect world, uh, there would only be Tao and it would be perceived as purely ego. Do you see how that would work? You know, in other words, you would always do the right thing because it was the right thing. Uh, that's what we're trying to reach, a place where there is only Tao and all that is perceived is will. But will then is Tao. You know, you've finally gotten it right. That's why, you know, if people can dance in waterfalls, if they can do all these astonishing things, that's how they do it, by becoming nothing more than a vessel for the pure intent of the Tao. Yeah. And you said the, the shaman can can see how it really works. Well, that's still the viewpoint from his own 
personal subjective reality. So if you get two shamans together, you can almost guarantee they wouldn't agree. Particularly if you take a geographic in this, and you take a shaman from Turkey and take a shaman from Mexico, let's say. They both have their own background. And so it's when you say really, anytime somebody tells me about reality, I say reality is subjective. Well, it's, it is and it isn't. In other words, the, you know, the, the great work on shamanism is Mersiliad's shaman, um, shamanism, the archaic techniques of ecstasy. And the fact that there can even be a global phenomenon called shamanism means there are certain distinguishing features in all times and places. I mean, you are right that there might be disagreement between the Turkish shaman and the Amazonian shaman. But I maintain not if you can get a clear enough channel of communication. In other words, there are cultural differences, linguistic differences, but finally both guys are looking at the same mountain. They're just, or both people, they're just looking through different eyes. Iliad was able to define a number of cross-cultural indices that seem archetypically true of shamanism. I mean, shamanism is about uh, a, a, a supramundane world, sometimes imagined as in the sky, sometimes imagined as below the earth. The shaman must attain a superhuman condition to translate his or herself into that domain. It's the domain, the proper theater for curing and for the recovery of the soul, which is curing, or the guiding of the soul into the after-death. Um, one of the things that's so interesting to me is I've never met a shaman who said that they had it all figured out. It is an exploratory dimension. Curiosity, not orthodoxy, is the, is the defining characteristic of true shamans. And, and where curiosity begins to give way to orthodoxy and, and ritual, then you're on your way to priestcraft. The, the thing that is so astonishing about the psychedelic experience at reasonably intense doses is that you discover the landscape that you may previously have only known from reading Mersiliad and Erich Neumann and, uh, and, and these people. But what, what we need, you're quite right, are better descriptions so that we can know what we're talking about. You know, once the New World, meaning North and South America, was known only from the uncollated journals of travelers. And somebody would write that at, at noon we passed a great river flowing into our left. Uh, I estimate its volume as twice that of the Rhine, but we have no time to ascend it. Well, then perhaps 10 years would pass and someone else would then ascend it. So slowly, from the notebooks of travelers, a seamless quilt of accounts could be put together and then you begin 
to draw maps, but we're not at that stage with shamanism yet. I mean, I had a guy who was wearing a penis sheath say to me one time, don't think that because we are so different from you that this, this, meaning the psychedelic experience, is easy for us. It's not easy for any human being. And I think that's true. We imagine that somehow we're the the odd one out. But I've, I've met great caution among shamans in the Amazon. They had a healthy respect of those places. I was the guy who wanted to go in and shine my flashlight around and sketch the walls and make the maps. And they said, you know, no, no, we've got sick people. We've got problems. We just want to get in there, fix it, wire it, and get out. Um, so I guess that's the difference between medical research and being the, the village doctor. Yeah. Could you compare and contrast the, the experience that comes through the plants from psilocybin and the experience that comes from a synthetic, specifically MDMA? Sure. I mean, uh, well, psilocybin can be contrasted to any compound, it's different from all other compounds, including all other psychedelics. Psilocybin is very interesting and should be studied more deeply because it does things that are quite uh, miraculous, that are very close to the surface. In other words, ordinary scientific methods of research, I think, could get at some of this. the first thing that is astonishing about psilocybin is that of all the psychedelics with well yes of all the psychedelics with the possible exception of DMT which is a whole special case psilocybin is the most easily capable of generating visions and that fascinated me I took a lot of LSD and I was really hyped for LSD. I had read, I was waiting, I was fully informed and prepared by the time I got to my first LSD trip. And I was somewhat puzzled by it. It did completely take me apart. And I thought many strange things and had many insights. But I had thought that it would be like the Havelock Ellis description the ruined cities dripping with jewels, the vast jungles, the strange machinery, all that. Uh Uh-uh. Later I discovered that by smoking good Bombay black hash on LSD, you can sort of coax that into existence. (laughs) But an easier thing is psilocybin. Psilocybin just causes you to hallucinate furiously. And I am, I don't understand how people can take this so casually. I mean, maybe we need to talk about the, the uh, taxonomy of hallucination. When I say hallucination, I'm not talking about the walls breathing or something like that. I'm not even talking about those little things that look like fans 
that go that are on like that cover everything like wallpaper you know when you open your eyes I mean those are hallucinations of some sort I think they're called hypnagogia or edetic phosphenes or something but that's all in the visual pathway that's about the eye what I'm interested in at that point is not the eye but the mind and on psilocybin my god you know Red velvet draperies are raised to an enormous organ tone, and then you just sail off into the most grandiose and extravagant architectonic unfoldment. I mean, there are no words for it. You don't know whether you're in a cyber remake of Sharp Cathedral or you're inside somebody's television set or you're walking around inside some kind of organism from Arturus or what is going on. And after a good psilocybin trip, you know, your eyes are like bugging out of your head. I mean, you have spent, it's like going to Upper Madison Avenue with money in your pocket. You have just been looking and looking and looking for hours and hours. And all, and this stuff, I, before I got, or as I was getting into all this, my interest was union psychology and art history. The fields which set you up for being able to recognize motifs trace them through time and understand how the various art movements of whatever centuries you're looking at fit together and and plus a deep faith in the architect uh, archetypal foundations of human imagery and so forth none of that was there it was as i said a niagara of alien beauty it was uh, beyond anticipating it was that I, Joe Nobody, in an hour, seemed to be seeing more art of higher quality than the human family had produced in the last thousand years. And for me, it was, first of all, an absolute aesthetic ecstasy to see that much stuff, to hit the main frame, and then say, oh, I see. So this is what they're talking about, not all that babbling about looking at the folds of your trousers and, you know, but this, this is something. I mean, this is civilization shattering stuff. I don't see how they keep the lid on it. Um, and I still don't see how they keep the lid on it. However, that, it turns out, is not the most interesting. or Well, it may be the most interesting. It is not the most unique feature of psilocybin. Without doubt, in my mind, the most unique feature of psilocybin is that it speaks. It speaks in your native tongue. And that is absolutely confounding to the rational mind. I mean, that's what makes a believer out of most skeptics. Because, you know, drugs, of course, you can imagine that a drug would mess with your mind and you would see strange things. That doesn't seem too over the top. But that you could take a drug that would drop a heavy hand on your shoulder and say, my friend, there are a few things you need to understand. Number one, 
number two. Meanwhile, you know, you're bursting into tears, you're reacting furiously because it's right. It's wiser than you could have possibly imagined, and it knows you better than you know yourself. And it's not wasting time, it's cutting to the chase. And this is astonishing to me. Who's in there? Who's in there? Is it the mushroom? Is it just straightforwardly that this thing growing on a cow pie in the pasture somehow has the capacity to unfold itself in my mind and lecture me on quantum physics, art history, geo, you know, the history of the galaxy, the destiny of the species, or, or what is going on there exactly? We, when someone tells you stuff you've never heard before, as fast as you can take it in, the only mode we know for that is conversation. And so you must assume you're having a conversation with someone at that point. And the the information is, you know, so puzzling. I mean, I believe that on a good psilocybin trip, you not only see things no one has ever seen before, but what you're seeing no one will ever see again. That's how big it is in there. You know, it it is beyond uh, the can of the human imagination. Uh, Why is it like that? Well, that's a very interesting question. Rupert says, I mean, this is just a stab at it, that these molecules not only give trips, they record them. And when you take a a substance that has been in use by human beings for half a million years, let's say, you walk into the largest database on the planet of dreams, of hopes, of aesthetic insights, uh, uh, not only the human world, but all the other worlds that the mushroom claims to have flourished in. Because it is not a terrestrial organism. It's engineered for deep space. It can percolate between the stars. In the course of a million years, it, at sublight speed, it could percolate across the galaxy. And a million years is a tiny fraction of the time that it may have been in existence. Uh, the miracle is that it will have anything to do with us, that it is a being so enlightened, so unperturbed, that it will actually stop whatever it's doing and talk to you. And you have the feeling when you're dealing with it, it's totally claiming all of your attention, but you have the feeling that it is something much more like the Bell, the ITT International Phone Net or something, that many of these conversations are going on. And it will answer any question you can ask. The bigger you can frame it, the easier it is for it to answer it. And so it shows you you know, the rise and fall of worlds, species, and civilizations, galaxies like grains of sand. I mean, it says, been there, done that. It's all here. Um, 
and so i think that the gaian mind produces these things and that they are like pheromones they are information bearing chemicals and it's a great mystery it is the mystery i have scoured this planet done yoga done this done that scratched pentacles in sand made monstrous offerings at crossroads under the dark of a scorpionic moon done it been there all that stuff nothing works it's all horseshit nothing works except this and this works not a little not 50% but a thousand percent it's like the thing that you have been most trained to accept doesn't exist it does exist they were wrong they lied to you for some weird reason this is the secret which is not supposed to be told and why i can tell it i'm not sure nobody ever came to me and said you mustn't you're part of the brotherhood you're an initiate you must keep silent nobody ever said that to me and i've never been initiated by anybody particularly i learned this stuff by reading the boston museum botanical leaflets and then you know putting tummy on the line and uh it, it it's the it's a secret which dwarfs the enterprise of human history and all that is required for you to be a part of it is a simple act of courage you know nobody goes to the ashram at nine o'clock in the morning with their knees knocking in terror and dread at what they know is about to sweep over them that's because yoga doesn't do that nothing puts you on the line like this does because this is what you say you want you know it's easy to be on the spiritual path you know you just try one screwy thing after another and go forward but when you arrive at this level the name of the game changes you sought the answer you got it now what are you going to do with it uh it's terrifying to me i have no doubt that if i wanted to be um the monk on cold mountain and go up into the mist and chop wood and every once in a while the village people every year or two would say oh yes he's still up there we glimpsed him naked in the snow uh, he lives in a cave i could do that but the price you pay when you finally find the tool of ultimate transcendence is that you will become incomprehensible to your fellow human beings because they are not where you are they are caught up in the idols of the tribe they live in the anthill they're worrying about uh, you know the oil leaks in their jaguar and uh, but it's a different thing all other spiritual disciplines drive with the accelerator to the floor you know that's how you do it when you come to psychedelics suddenly there arises a great interest in locating the brakes <laughs> the brakes become all important because you can now proceed at whatever rate you wish 
It's no longer what Baba says or when the next workshop by Dr. So-and-so is held. It's now you have been given the power to move as far and as fast into this dimension as you want. And the, the joys are absolutely real and so are the risks. Uh, we don't know what the limits of the human mind are. We don't know how much you can gaze upon and still, uh, you know, play any role in the social community. I mean, I'm a graduate of the H.P. Lovecraft school of this stuff. You know, there are, there are some truths too bizarre for the mind to even brush against. And I've had that feeling with the mushroom. I mean, sometimes we, because we have dialogues, Hasidic, great, raving Hasidic dialogues. Uh, and one of the things I have said to it at times is, show me yourself. Show me what you are, not for the talking monkeys. Show me what you are for yourself. And it's terrifying. I mean, the temperature drops about 15 degrees in about 15 seconds, and there's a low organ tone, and black draperies begin to rise. And after about two minutes of this, you just say, that's enough, thank you, of what you are for yourself. Let's go back to the dancing mice, the cheerful paisleys, my relationship, and uh, what we think about human history, but no more, because, because it is beyond comprehension. It's the real thing, folks, what all these people were talking about on the mountains, in the cave. And the strange thing is, it's among us. It's completely among us and uh, can be pursued by anybody, by any free-thinking human being. And I don't ultimately know what it means. Uh, out of it, I, it's given me, I believe, a complete map of human history. That was, that's the equivalent of trading a knife and a can of sardines to a starving Witoto in some baboon asshole outpost on a river. It meant nothing to it to give me a complete map of human history and a new vision of higher mathematics. They've got trade goods like that lined up from here to Hosanna. And so it's just all about, you know, what you are willing to ask for. I don't know what it means. I, I don't believe in believing. I don't believe in drawing conclusions. But I do believe that life is a staggering opportunity for adventure. I mean, people who are complaining that things are too dull haven't the faintest notion of how weird it can get in a hurry, if that's what you're interested in. Yeah. And, and now, uh, from the chemist's bench, MDMA. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, MDMA, these, these um, well, first of all, all drugs are different from each other. They do different things. Uh, the MDMA, if we just speak as orth in a language that ordinary pharmacologists would approve of, MDMA is a cyclicized amphetamine that seems very useful in the hands of therapists who are trying to coax people 
into a deeper level of self-reflection about their personal dilemmas. It's a kind of catalyst for, for reflexive thought and uh, very effective, although most effective in the hands of, of someone who can guide that. Uh, it, it isn't in the same league as these psychedelics. There are, I guess what we should say here is, bear in mind, there are many, 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 many kinds of altered states. There's dreaming, there's orgasm, there's fury, there's fear, and these are the ordinarily accessible ones. There's also, you know, what happens uh, on two vodka gimlets. There's what happens uh, when you take Valium or when you take Prozac, or Ritalin, or amphetamine, or MDA, or things like tropanes, uh, which are, have been used by shamans all over the world, which, but which I don't have any interest at all in. Uh, tropanes being the solanaceous plants, uh, L-hylcyamine, atropine, these things which create states of complex delusion. There's no doubt about it. You do walk off into your own private Idaho. But it's not transcendental. It's watery and occult and, and about power and about uh, illusion. It's great for magic. But, you know, magic is not great for the soul, so bear that in mind. As to why these things are different, um, I think drugs have morphogenetic fields, and uh, uh, MDMA, which was invented in 1914, has, has a, a, kind of, it's a kind of empty skyscraper. It's being slowly inhabited by the trips of the people who take it. But the, trip, the people who take it are all probably tend to be upper middle class, white, English-speaking people of privilege. So we're not getting a deep slice of, uh, of uh, a deep demographic slice. Uh, as to whether or not I approve of it, yeah, I pretty much approve of it. I mean, I approve of whatever works. The pharmacological profile is a little unsettling. In other words, it does do things to the to the uh, architecture of the nervous system that is debatably not a good thing. But you can block that effect with Prozac. Uh, Apparently, there's a toxic molecular subspecies in the MDMA that is reuptaken with the serotonin. But Prozac, being a serotonin blocker, will actually block this effect of the MDMA. Well, I'm not advocating that you take Prozac or MDMA, but I also don't think people should be treated like children. So you should know this. If you are taking a lot of MDMA, I think it might not be a bad idea to discuss uh, your situation with a pharmacologist, not not with a psychiatrist, but I mean to discuss the chemical nature of what you're doing. Yeah. 
Right under my cushion. I squashed it? No, it's not a black widow. But Scram, it's a small tarantula of some There he goes. Good, you're paying attention. Yes. Um, referring back to a couple things that you mentioned, you, you mentioned about the guy in intent, and first thing is I'm curious to know what you might think that is. And you made the statement, we're being pulled toward a transcendental object. Right. And is there, what do you think the relationship is between what we're being pulled toward and the guy in intent? Is that intent directed towards the thing we're being pulled towards? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that that we have a low-dimensional slice of the process, so we see it as unfolding in time. But at a higher level, it's sort of a done deal. I'm not a determinist exactly, but I think things are more predetermined than we tend to think. Uh, I don't think you can assume, as many people do, that humanity is an abomination and that we've escaped from nature's control and that this is just a terrible mistake. It's not a terrible mistake. It's it's a temporary disequilibrium that is somehow necessary to the planetary intent. The Gaian intent, because Gaia, if we believe that that the planetary intent is intact, then apparently the Gaian intent is willing to sacrifice a huge amount for this human experiment. It's accepting the extinction of species, the toxification, the clearing of the environment. And when I look through the inventory of natural situations, trying to find a similar situation where this kind of thing goes on. Where I find it is in the interuterine environment immediately before birth, before transition. That, you know, uh, I mean, suppose if, if fetuses had political voices other than the Christian right, they might say something like this, you know, we've lived in this amniotic ocean, it's been wonderful, uh, and now we've used up all the resources, and the walls are closing in, and apparently we're going to be crushed and strangled to death in the, in the birth canal. And what it really is, is we've, we've used up all the food in the egg, we've used up all our resources and so nature is pushing us at a, at, at a fairly intense rate toward some kind of transformation and uh, we talked the other night I think about you know is nature the baby or is nature the placenta and in other words, are we supposed to take care of nature and nurture it and preserve it? If it's the baby, that's appropriate. If it's the placenta, that's grotesque. If it's the placenta, it's supposed to be buried under the old apple tree and we push on to new and different states of being. 
I, I think nature is a transcendental engine. Last night I spoke of it as a novelty conserving engine. Transcendentalism and novelty are to me the same thing. I think nature would never be con um, content with a climaxed ecosystem at equilibrium. It will always send asteroid impacts, rivers flooding their banks, viral plague, because it likes to shuffle the deck. Because what it wants is something it doesn't have yet. But we are, it, it, novelty has lodged in us. N novelty is not raging among the termites or the seaweeds of this planet. Their times came and went. It's concentrated in the mammalian order, in the primates, in the homo sapiens. And uh, I think that, you know, life left the ocean. And that was an enormous dimensional transition. Life left the wordless, unlanguaged world of the brute mind. And that was an enormous transition. And so we are poised on another one of these transitions. Somebody faxed me a thing last week. It was, amused me. It said, it was just a big sign. There was no message with it. And it said, when you strip away the hype, it's just another concrescence. And that's what it is. It's just another concrescence. They come along every million or so or hundred million years. And we have the great good fortune to be very near the cusp of one of these things. And I, I, my fantasy is that a hundred years from now, this planet will be empty of human life. That, you know, the, the cities will be falling into ruin, the... Uh, it will, we will have gone. Where? I'm not sure. But I can feel it, you know, I mean, like the growth of the Internet, the rise of psychedelic uh, compounds. I mean, we don't know where we're headed, but we're, you know, oiling the wagon wheels, putting the dogs and the old lady into the wagon, and we're, we're headed west to Oregon, to the Ohio Valley, somewhere. But this time it's not in three-dimensional space. We've, we've finished that process. And my motivation in talking to people like this is I think that you, you, you become, uh, well, I was almost going to say as I am, but... That's too horrifying to contemplate. But you, you become psychedelic by taking psychedelics. And what psychedelic means is free of anxiety because you have the larger picture. You, people need to be able to rationally think in terms of 10 million years, uh, a million years, 50,000 years, uh, to get the context of what's happening. And then the idea that somehow since the Renaissance we could have broken loose from God's uh, yoke and created some kind of an abomination just turns out to be one more fantasy of the engineering mentality. And that we are involved in a very dramatic uh, process 
we have turned a corner in the fractal labyrinth of becoming and suddenly we get a shot of a vista we never suspected. But clearly we're going to live in the imagination. And, and whether that means no bodies at all or some kind of electronic coral reef on the moon that we all march into, whether it means lucid dreaming forever or what exactly it means, we don't have to understand at this point how the I's will be dotted and the T's uh, crossed. All we have to understand is that this is where we're headed. And it's been on paper since William Blake. He said, you know, the divine imagination is the course of futurity. Well, here we are in futurity, folks. And I, I am not technophobic at all. I'm politically phobic. But I think technology is nothing more than biology pursued by other means is a paraphrase of Clausewitz's definition of war, you know. He said, war is politics pursued by other means. But I think uh, uh, technology is biology pursuing other means. And Because if you look at the history of biology, what it has clearly placed great premium on is the acceleration of change. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I forget it, if you're new here to the salon, you may not be aware of the trialogues that were held between Terence McKenna and the two men that he mentioned in this talk, Ralph Abraham and Rupert Sheldrake. But if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you'll remember the 40 or so podcasts of these trialogues that I did, beginning with my podcast number 58, uh, posted in November of 2006 right after Ralph Abraham gave me his big box of tapes from these events. So if you haven't listened yet to these trialogues, you probably owe it to yourself to do so. They're really packed with all kinds of new and interesting ideas, and I'll put a link to that archive in the program notes for today's podcast, which, uh, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. Okay, and now this absolutely has nothing to do with anything other than it's uh, another one of my seemingly endless stories. But when Terence said that you could spend a lifetime in low bars and never see a tossed coin land on its edge, well, it doesn't actually take an entire lifetime. <laughs> I actually did see exactly that happen in a low bar in the Philippines, a long opposed city to be exact. There were uh, several of us naval officers there, and we all saw it happen. But now that I think of it, we were probably uh, pretty drunk at the time, and the bar girls had already taken a lot of our money on their other bar tricks uh, that they used to separate drunken sailors from their money. That quarter did land on its edge, of that I'm sure, but now that I think of it, uh, there must have been a trick there. Huh. <laughs> now I wish I hadn't even started telling that story, because uh, I think it was a bar trick. I hadn't thought of that before. It's kind of like hearing the truth about Santa Claus for the first time. Anyhow, before I go, uh, I want to let you know about a couple of Reddit AMAs that I did this past week. The first one was on the Psychonaut subreddit, and the second one was on the MDMA therapy subreddit. 
I'd uh, actually never participated in one of the Reddit Ask Me Anythings before, and I'm pleased to report that uh, it was a really good experience. So if you're interested in what was discussed, you can surf on over to our program notes, and uh, you'll find the links to those transcripts there. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.